0: You know, most problems in healthcare are fixed already. Primary care is already cured on the fringes. Reversing burnout, physician shortages, bad business models, forced buyouts, factory medicine, high deductible insurance that squeezes the docs and is totally inaccessible to most of the employees. The big squeeze is always on for docs. It's the acceleration of cost and the deceleration of reimbursements. I want you to meet those on this show that are making a difference with us Ron Barshop CEO of Beacon Clinics that's me So according to health affairs we spent about 11,200 per person in America last year which is double our nearest competitor nationwide which would be Switzerland which has doubled most of the other peer nations. So we're way, way ahead on spending, and we have the lowest outcomes. That's old news, but what, here's what's new news with the COVID environment. Hospitals last year treated 22 million people, which is about 7% of our population, and nationally that represents about a third of the overall federal spend for healthcare. So without going into a bunch of numbers, what we're talking about is we spend about $3,700 per hospital patient per year in America. The bailout that was just received by hospitals is 10000 per patient per year. So let me just repeat that. The bailout is three times the size of the patient revenues that the hospitals are getting in normal times. In other words, they've got a three-year supply of revenue based on this bailout. Hat tip to the American Hospital Association lobbyists. Now, primary care by comparison, I should say, is really 190 people versus those 22 million people. And that's about 60% of us in America. And the spend there is not roughly 3000 but it's about a sixth of that. And the, the bailout package for primary care is zero. If you want to look at the PPP plan, yes, there is some revenue that is coming in. There's grant revenue for some of the doctor's offices. But about 60% of primary care offices are estimated to be broke and destroyed by the end of June. So we don't have a bailout for primary care, which keeps the whole backbone of the body going, which is the machine that keeps everything running. We do have a bailout for the hospitals and a second one coming. So today, and this is all coming from the Robert Graham Center and from our guests today, who I'm really excited to introduce you to. Tom Banning is the CEO and EVP for the Texas Academy of Family Physicians. For 13 of his 20 years on board with him, he's been directing strategic and legislative strategy, grassroots political action, CME, membership, and communication activities. And they're the largest specialty society in Texas with over 1,000, 8,000 members. That's almost as many members as AMA has, and I'm joking, but they, they are very strong because they have a strong advocate in Tom Banning and in Texas represents one of the largest uh, family physician models of all of the associations in the whole country. So Tom, welcome to the show. We're sure glad to have you on board.
1: Great. Thank you for having me. I appreciate uh, appreciate you giving me the time.
0: TAFP is associated with the American Association of Family Practice. Are you a sort of a state version of that? Or are you asso- How are you associated with the national boards?
1: Yeah, the uh, American Academy of Family Physicians uh, is our um, national parent organization. We're uh, just a, a, an aligned or integrated state chapter. So every state has an Academy of Family Medicine, and uh, I just happen to represent the one in the, the best state, which is Texas.
0: So when Texas does secede, you will be the equivalent of the AAFP. Is that correct?
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I, I think and I hope that talk of uh, our secession or our seceding has uh, subsided. Certainly, um, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic has, has put into very clear uh perspective um you know what some of our state limitations are let's talk a
0: little bit about this powerlessness of physicians versus the powerfulness of the bigs and i call them the bigs because medical devices hospitals insurance companies the pbms um, you could throw in the brokers their lobby combined taking out physicians entirely The next four in line would not even be bought by the the largest that's in the lobbying of the big four, big five. What happened to physicians along the way where they didn't get that same kind of capital to spend?
1: Well, I I think I would disagree to an extent. I think, you know, the physicians have capital, uh, but their capital is not dollar bills in their pocket. Uh, Their capital is with their patients. You know, physicians are, by and large, they go into medicine as a calling. They want to care for people. They have a relationship with patients, uh, and that's where they spend their time. That's where they put their political capital. That's where they put their personal capital. Uh, you know, their their financial capital. Um, you know, is is to pay off medical school debt, to you know, take care of their families, to take care of their communities, and you know, politics to a lot of folks and, and physicians in particular. Um, you know, are really turned off by um, politics just generally. They think it's kind of an ugly game and it's and it's dirty. And, you know, based on what you might see on the news, it, it's a certainly an understandable uh, feeling that they're expressing. Uh, unfortunately, how that um, manifests itself is, I don't want to say a lack of a voice, but not as strong of a voice as, um people that uh, expend vast amounts of money um, and hire hordes of lobbyists to um, represent them in the in the halls of Congress. So you know while while physicians are busy taking care of their patients, taking care of their communities, Um, they're they're not investing the same amount of time the same amount of money and resources into the political process as um, the groups that you had mentioned
0: so the ACA in 2009 12 11 years ago was a banquet for a lot of the bigs a lot of them won big the doctors got nothing this latest uh, Marshall Plan we'll call it the two trillion dollar bailout the doctors essentially got nothing other than PPP am I wrong did I miss something there
1: no, we have got a system where uh, you know everything up, up to this point has really revolved around the hospitals, and um, uh, and that's why we've got our our finances so out of whack um, uh, that we, you know when you design systems, when you de- design payment methodologies, you know you're going to get the outcomes <laughs> that you've designed, and thus far we have designed. Payment methodologies, uh, care models around the hospitals, which are the highest cost areas. So again, no surprise that costs are going up, um, but they're also the highest vectors for um, you know spreading COVID nineteen, and that's kind of playing itself out or, or showing itself through. Um studies that were done in Italy and um, some in the in the northwest US where uh, where the disease uh, was first expressing itself here in this country. And that's how the politicians have responded is by throwing a ton of money um, at the hospitals. Um, and let me say there's there's no question that the hospitals are hemorrhaging money right now. They built a business model around um, uh, emergency room. Uh, emergency emergency room use uh, and elective procedures and with both the Trump administration's directives as well as uh, many state governor's directives to uh, limit um, uh, elective surgeries, it's really uh, uh, hampered those um, revenue streams that the hospitals had built their businesses around. We also represent, we got a lot of family doctors that do emergency medicine, and and I talk to, to them often. Uh, actually, our current president uh, is, a, is an ER doctor in Starr County along the valley, and he was telling me how the ER rooms have essentially dried up that only people with true emergencies are coming in because people are heeding the warnings about um, where to get care. But kind of back to uh, the question that you posed, the government, uh, the federal government, has um, really put all of its efforts into subsidizing or keeping open the hospitals. Uh, That sort of attention has really not been given Uh, to the physicians, despite our best efforts um, in telling them what's happening in the field. You know, most primary care practices have seen um, their patient volume go down 50 to 70 percent, which is, you know, crushing to the bottom line and the ability to, to, to pay your bills and keep the doors open. Um, we, even for doctors that have moved significantly into uh, providing telemedicine services to their patients, um, you still see a drop in revenue in the range of 25 to 30% because you, the the physicians are not able to, to provide um, those other ancillary services that occur at an in-person visit, uh, labs, vaccinations, immunizations, thing, things of that nature. Um, so what you're starting to see uh, is you know, uh, furloughing of staff, significant cuts in, in, in salaries uh, for the existing staff as well as the physician practices, and and sadly, we're seeing practices just close their doors that uh, that aren't able to make a, a model work that can uh, can keep their doors open, and that's that's devastating for not only the practice but but the patients that that physician was serving. I mean, you know, just because we're dealing with COVID doesn't mean that people aren't still getting sick. I mean, people are still having heart attacks. People still have chronic diseases that need to be managed. Uh, we're seeing a lot more uh, mental health issues arise because of stress, of uh, job loss, where the economy is, you know, being <laughs> being around your family for uh, far too long in, in, in some instances. And we are uh, losing... Uh, the critical frontline primary care physician to uh, The the economics of our of our broken fee-for-service system.
0: So fee-for-service I'm calling it walking dead. The model is no longer you're working on an initiative right now to change that model to more of a revenue uh, Value unit model. Can you talk a little bit about where you think fee-for-service should be evolving to and who pays for this?
1: Sure. Um, so, you know, fee for service, as you know, is is just a, a volume game. So patient has to come in, you know, physically be seen. Maybe you can do it via telemedicine, but it it's a transactional uh, system. What we're talking about is moving for primary care payment to more of a prospective or relational payment model. In other words, pay a physician a monthly fee or lump sum, a per member per month unit of, of payment for uh, caring for that, uh, that patient's needs. So you unburden the primary care doctor from a lot of the administrative crap, <laughs> frankly, that is driving them nuts under fee-for-service. To, to, to document um, uh, that what they're doing is truly a billable event. So we're just saying, okay, well, let's assume as a percentage of premium that we could come up with a, a number that would make sense financially for the, the physicians, financially for the system for that physician to provide you know, uh, your, your typical primary care services um, care management, disease management, be accessible, um, and 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 provide that continuity without being forced to rely um, on that, that transactional nature of, um, of, of of having you know folks physically come into the to the office to see you.
0: You're de- you're describing value-based capitated play, pay, and you're also describing direct primary care. I mean, that's exactly what you're talking about right now
1: that's that's correct and, and 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 you know the if you think about it from a budgeting standpoint the the CFOs of companies have already determined what they're going to spend on a premium for insurance whether you're self insured or you're buying a fully insured product uh, what we're saying is look for primary care services th- this is a budgetable item let's either take it out of the premium altogether and buy directly uh, that primary care service or Make it a percentage of premium um, that that should, or and it certainly has uh, expressed, uh, you know, much higher downstream savings for, you know, reduced specialty utilization, redu- reduced ER utilization, reduced hospitalization.
0: So can I play with some numbers with you? If you look at the average premium for corporations that are self-insured, they for an individual, not family. They're fifteen thousand. They're putting in the individuals adding another 5,000 premium themselves. So 20,000 and let's say 5% of all that 20 is going into um, primary care. We just talked about at the top of the show, we're talking about $1,000 per member or 80 bucks per member per month. Is that about the range we're talking about or thinking about for a share of that uh, of 20,000,
1: 5%? You know, we're actually working with some um, uh, insurance modeling groups right now. And Uh, Using both direct primary care as sort of a um, a way to look at it, Uh, we're also using uh, Medicare Advantage uh, as a model to look at, and then you know some of the more advanced capitation. But uh, you know, I I don't want to get stuck on a number um, because it, it it you know it depends on your patient population. You could risk adjust. Uh, upwards or downwards, you know, it also depends on the sort of um, services or bundle of services that you're willing to offer. So I, 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 but I think generally the range that you're looking at would be within the ballpark.
0: Yeah. I mean, DPCs are charging. The biggest that I know of in the country that has been on my show is uh, Clint Flanagan in Colorado has 60 locations. Clint is charging $79 for the first uh, number, 59 bucks for the spouse and then less for the kids. So he's averaging about 70 bucks on average, per member per month, not including the kids. You know, he's doing all right. He's doing just fine. There's others that are less. than Topeka, Kansas, the Umber brothers that are um, really sort of a progenitor of all this. Um, you know, their goes closer to fifty bucks, but that's Topeka, Kansas. So it's a, and it's a healthier population. So um, and then I had Gordon Chin on the show last week, and Gordon has a Medicare population. He's getting ready to launch here in Texas. So. Um, Gordon has, and I don't, I didn't talk to him specifics, but I know that he's doing very well with only 400 patients per white coat. So he doesn't need a lot of patients with the Medicare reimbursement to do very well. And frankly, when patients aren't coming in the clinic and they're not having to staff the clinics fully, this is like a golden era for that type of a model.
1: That's exactly right. I mean, and you know, you, you've got groups like, uh, Iora or Oak street that have have proven that the model works um, and more than pays for itself. My personal doctor, um, Chris Larson, is a direct primary care physician here in Austin, uh, has worked a a deal with Rudy's Barbecue. There's been some stuff that they have published where they saw, uh, I believe it was between 20 and 30% reduction in total health care costs uh, just by moving their uh, their employees into this model, that gives them better care, more accessible care at, at a lower cost. So, so I think that you know I hate that it took a pandemic of uh, the, you know magnitude to um, focus people's attention on just how broken our fee for service system is, and and models that are better, but that's just the reality of uh, how things work. And I think there's a lot of attention that is going to be paid on uh, to this model going, going forward.
0: So Chris Crow in Dallas and North Texas, Oklahoma, and Clive Fields in Houston and point South of Dallas have, well, actually is all over the country have this value based model that looks like it's really ahead of the game right now. That model seems to be doing very well in these times, even if you're not with Medicare patients, but with sort of a, you know, working class people. Is that, is that model still solid with uh, with those two big ACOs and others like them?
1: Yeah, uh, you know, and it's not to mix metaphors, it's not rocket surgery here. Um, you know what they have done? They've built fantastic uh, networks that are you know highly sophisticated from a tech standpoint, uh, and they wrap a ton of care management and patient navigation around their their patients. They help them make decisions. Uh, again, that's not a reimbursable event, but they help them, they navigate them through a very costly system. And if their savings on the backside, uh, then they get to split it. Uh, and both groups have, have been phenomenal in their ability to bend the cost curve, to improve quality. And it's based around some pretty simple care management strategies that, honestly, that's what managed care was designed to do before the, 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 the book is the big, uh, the big health plans got out of managing care and, and simply started managing money. And so almost, you know, what's, what's old is new again. And, and that's some of the success to their model, but, but, but they also have some pretty good tech around them uh, to help empower their, uh, their physicians um, to, to, to perform you know at, at such, such a high level.
0: Yes. I think you and I are going to have a disagreement about what is the top of the food chain in Europe. We had tacos in Dallas when we met at the Health Rosetta event, and you thought that this value-based model was really the, the bomb, and I thought direct primary care was the bomb. And I'd like to prosecute my case with you, if I may. May I try that with you? Um, you're, you're, you are. You, there's probably nobody in the state I respect more than you to have this debate with. So it's not even a debate; it's just a matter of opinion. But my concern about value-based care nationwide is that it's a setup, and it's a setup for a takeover of primary care. And everybody knows that the bigs have design on the owning the network. Their customers, not the employer, not the taxpayer, not the federal government, it's the networks. That's who they're trying to please. If they have more control of their networks, they have more control of what comes into their system, and therefore, um, they've got really the source of the Nile, the source mouth of the Mississippi, however you want to look at it. Mm-hmm. I'm concerned that if capitation goes the way that MRIs went, that every other vertical United name has gone, it just steadily gets hammered year after year after year until it's basically not affordable anymore. So, if we want to say, hey, the bigs are noble and they're trying to do the right thing by America. We're going to say they're going to never lower it so much that Clive and Chris Crow can't make a good living for their physicians to survive. But if we look take a little bit of a conspiracy theory, a grassy knoll theory, we're going to say they're going to hammer reimbursement rates or capitation rates until it's worth nothing. And then they can just take those over. Am I completely smoking dope here?
1: No, I actually think that you're uh, exactly right. And it's a big concern that um, that we have had uh, in the conversations that I'm having with physicians about getting a cap rate or a prospective payment rate that is simply too low and doesn't um, capture the services that a primary care physician is providing um, and all of the other care management um, Strategies that they're that they're utilizing and put in place. You know, this is going to be a hard thing for for physicians to appreciate or understand. But but I don't I don't think it's I don't think we can avoid it. And that is when we get on the other side of this pandemic, the world is going to look a lot different, and we are not going to go back to the way in which um, healthcare has been delivered uh, in the past, uh, and we are not going to go back to the way that we've been paying for it. I think what you are likely to see are organized regional systems of care um, that are going to um, essentially consolidate or aggregate physicians. Uh, And that's gonna occur either through the hospital, through private equity groups, uh, or physicians coming together to lead within their communities. So groups like Catalyst in Dallas or Village MD, down in Houston. Uh, I think it's going to be incredibly tough, if not impossible, for solo or small group practices to um, uh, continue doing what they have done uh, in, the, in the way in which they have done it. In other words, they're going to have to align with like-minded colleagues to help pay for the technology that's going to be required, to help pay for the care management services that um, are going to be needed and required, and and really just to do a lot of the business of medicine. Um, And how they choose to align, you know, is really going to define what, um, you know, what, what the future looks like. Uh, but I think that as the groups get more sophisticated, and certainly as they get larger, that should be a good counterbalance to the desire or ability to to squeeze even further the cap rate or the prospective payment rate. Uh, and you know they're, they're, I think the doctors, certainly the the, the more thoughtful and aggressive physicians, Really understand the, their their business model, what they can do, in the savings that could be accrued if given the uh, opportunity and responsibility with some upside savings. So I don't think that they're scared to go down that path. I don't think that they're scared to you know renegotiate or, or or look at the rates going forward. But you know, I I, 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 I we are absolutely concerned that. Um, you know, people are going to come uh, and have a, a much different idea of, of what a, a rate should be that's, that's, that's quote unquote, fair and, and adequate.
0: I call it the kindness of strangers model. You're Scarlett O'Hare, You're hoping the, the strangers are going to give you a fair rate every year, and the strangers aren't going to want you alive in their network, is my feeling.
1: That's a, a fair uh, issue, but you know, if, you think, <laughs> if you think about just from a workforce standpoint, um, we've already got a big shortage of primary care physicians because our medical schools have not been um, not been producing the workforce that we need. Um, this pandemic is going to force a lot of retirements or people that just can't make it any longer, which is going to create a, a greater strain on that workforce. So, you know, they may think that they can, um, you know, do something without the the bigs could do something without primary care, but I think they're going to be struggling to find, you know, enough as it is. Uh, So again, that kind of creates a different environment.
0: What I like about direct primary care, going back to taco days, is that you don't have any stranger dictating what you're going to charge per member per month. You get to charge your own rate, and there's certainly market forces at, at work here. But um, direct primary care is just, if you put the two ACOs we've talked about in Houston and Dallas together, they are still not even a tenth of Kaiser Permanente, which isn't even half the size of Optum's uh, primary care group. So you're talking about a dot on the elephant's rear end, you know, and, and that's value-based care that's organized And because they can only work with $5 million practices on up. They're, they're trying to figure out how to go downstream and work with these smaller PCPs. So what what you have in, in the ACOs is just they're aggregating larger and larger groups and they've run out of independent larger groups because they're all bought. There's literally towns in Texas You could go to Temple, Texas, and not find a single independent family practitioner or any other PCP. You can go the same thing to a dozen other smaller towns that are, I'd call them satellites, the metros, and there's literally no family practitioners that are independent anymore. They're just literally sopped up by these systems.
1: Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you know, that's, that's a failure of our, um, of our healthcare system. I, and, and let me be clear. I, I like direct primary care. I am on the national board of the direct primary care coalition. I, I go to a direct primary care physician. I think the challenge with DPC as it exists today is it's really difficult to scale. Uh, and it is, uh, and, and if you limit the number of patients that you see in a DPC model, you are going to have difficulty caring for commu- uh, an entire community. The other issue is uh, there's a tax advantage to employers providing uh, health benefits that do not accrue to direct primary care. And until that tax provision is changed, uh, it's going to restrict the ability of DPC to grow.
0: Are you talking about the HSAs or something else I don't know about?
1: Yeah, the HSAs, the use of HSAs to, and and, and, the, and pre-tax dollars to be used to, to, to pay for uh, direct primary gear. All
0: right, so here's what I'm going to do with you. i a set of time with you and before we hang up the phone today and I'm going to show you a way around every problem you just stated. I think we've come up with a model that solves everything you just created as a non-problem.
1: Great, I'd love to see it.
0: I want to stay in touch with you because everything's changing so rapidly and you have this sort of interesting macro view over the universe. How does TAFP rate among all the Association of Family Physicians around the country? Are y'all the third largest or fourth largest?
1: We are the second largest in membership behind California, but we're uh, quickly catching them.
0: Well, they they deserve to be in second place. They're not in Texas.
1: <laughs> That's very true.
0: That's something you should be proud of. That's way to go, Tom. Um, so let's, kind of, let's wrap up. What is the most important thing if family physician that you should be focusing on right now to shift gears and support the efforts you're using to get this more to a capitation model as opposed to fee-for-service. What can they do to join the movement, if you will?
1: Well, they can certainly go to our website, uh, uh, TAFP.org. They could go to the Health Rosetta website, and read about the Primary Care Marshall Plan. You know, we've got an opportunity to uh, provide feedback in in, uh, our comments section, or they can reach out to me directly. My email address is tbanning at tafp.org, or my cell phone uh, never stops ringing, so they can call me uh, at 512-497-0048 if they want to share their thoughts. Uh, And and I think they need to be open to change.
0: Is that Marshall Plan 50-50 chance of success, 10-90? What what are you looking at as the odds of that even going through?
1: We've had a lot of good conversations with both employers, insurers, and government. Um, I think that there is a, again, a a recognition that our fee-for-service system is is failing primary care. Uh, And we have spent over a decade talking about value-based care and moving to, you know, a different model. Uh, and this is a real opportunity to, to significantly um, and fundamentally move the needle and change the paradigm. I'm not a gambler, but I would say, you know, changing anything in healthcare is really hard, but I'd give it a 50 better than 50, 50 chance.
0: And who pays for it? Is it the insurance companies that are going to check in with this value-based model for everybody? Or is it uh Uh, The employers are going to have to jump in. I mean, the employers aren't organized.
1: Well, you know, the the employers actually are pretty organized through groups like the um, National Alliance for Healthcare Purchasers, you know, some of the, you know, larger companies that are part of um, the Pacific Business Group on Health and some of the, you know, the Dallas or the Texas Business Group on Health. Um, You know, the employers really have the opportunity to drive this, especially the self-insured employers that could just say, we're going to take you know what we were spending in premium take x percent and just carve it out for primary care and then use the insurers to pay for or use the insurers and their tpas to really um provide insurance for what's insurable and those conversations are are ongoing
0: well um, there's so much more to talk about but no more time what is the uh, banner that you would fly over I'll call it Texas that right now, if you had to get a message out to all the Texas physicians.
1: Hang in there. We're, you know, we're going we're gonna to get through this. It might be painful. No, it is going to be painful and it is going to be ugly. But on the other side of this, um, the opportunities for primary care um, have never been been better.
0: Well, Tom, thank you very much. And I look forward to our next conversation. Sounds great. Thank you for listening you want to shake things up, there's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.